Welcome everybody to the September episode of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I'm very happy that my co-host is back this month. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? We missed you you last month. month. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, travel plans didn't uh, allow me to, to participate last month. So Thanks for the welcome back. Um, so I'm Andrew Stram. I'm a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at Medical College of Wisconsin here in Girl. Milwaukee. So we are really excited about today's guest, um, Janelle Cubbage, who we're going to go ahead and introduce in just a moment. But I just wanted to take a couple of minutes and remind folks that September is Suicide Prevention Month. If you are local to Milwaukee or Wisconsin, There are some really wonderful events that are still happening this month. You can check out PreventSuicideWI.org for a full calendar of suicide prevention events that are happening this month. And if you're not local to Wisconsin, I just suggest um, checking out any events that might be happening in your area. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that we will be discussing issues related to suicide and suicide prevention as part of today's episode. And so if at any time you feel like you need to take a step away, uh, please feel free to do so. Hit pause and we will be here when you get back. I do also just quickly want to mention a couple of resources that folks can reach out to and utilize if they are ever in need of assistance. The first resource I'd like to mention, um, if you're local to Milwaukee County, is the Milwaukee County Warm Line. You can reach that number at 414 777-4729. That uh, warm line is available from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. every evening except Thursdays and all holidays as well. Um, that warm line is staffed by peers with lived experience and so is a great resource. I would also just like to remind folks of the Alternatives to Suicide resource that is available through Mental Health America of Wisconsin. Again, this is a peer-run group that is focused on helping folks that live with suicidal thoughts or perhaps are suicide attempt survivors and is available for free. Groups are meeting still via Zoom. If you're interested in those, just Google ALT, the number two, Sue, S-U, Wisconsin, and you will be able to find alternatives to suicide groups there. And so today's guest uh, is somebody that I'm very, very excited to talk to. Our guest today is Janelle Cubbage. Janelle uh, is actually somebody that I saw at the American Association for Suicidology Conference this year and wanted to meet with her. She currently serves as the Strategic Partnerships and Equity Program Manager at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. She began her career providing case management and care coordination to adjudicated youth where she encountered firsthand the deleterious effects of gun violence. It was then that Janelle made a commitment to prevent gun violence and care for those who have been affected. Janelle then transitioned to a career as a suicidologist where she gained experience managing prevention programs for the military and serving as the Director of Suicide Prevention at Maryland's Behavioral Health Administration, and she also chaired Maryland's Governor's Commission on Suicide Prevention. Janelle also works as a licensed trauma therapist, specializing in providing therapy for minoritized communities. She is passionate about healing racial trauma and actively working for racial and social justice. 
Janelle is a recent fellow of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative and earned her Master's of Public Health at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in 2022. Congratulations. Congrats. Janelle also holds a Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from McDaniel College. And as I mentioned, I had the opportunity to hear Janelle speak at the American Association of Suicidology Conference this year. And today's episode discusses a really important topic in suicide, which is suicide in the Black community. We intentionally scheduled this episode during Suicide Prevention Month to help really center this issue in suicide prevention dialogue. Locally, here in Milwaukee, and specifically in the city of Milwaukee, we have seen increases in suicides among folks of color, and particularly young Black men. We know that suicide is much more than a mental health issue, Suicide has roots in policies, systems, and structures. And in our ongoing work, we really want to call attention to these systems of oppression that are at the root of many suicides in the Black community and to use our power to challenge those systems. So I heard Janelle speak on this topic at the American Association for Suicidology in Chicago this year, and her words were really powerful. So welcome, Janelle. We're so happy to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm just blown away by the response to my talk at AAS this year. So I structured that talk based off of the work of my capstone for my MPH, um, where I looked at racism and how that contributes to the various constructs of the interpersonal theory of suicide. So I'm just very happy at any opportunity to be able to share this work. Yeah, well, super glad you're here and uh, just appreciate your time and energy and talking with us about this today. Of course. So what initially brought you to the work of suicide prevention? I know I talked a little bit about your background, but I'm wondering if there was anything that kind of sparked your interest to to work in this field. So my story is actually not a traditional, like found my calling because I had this profound experience. It actually kind of happened haphazardly. I had started out my career in juvenile justice as a case manager. Um, I was working at a residential treatment facility and then eventually transitioned to doing similar work in care coordination in the community. At that time of my transition to that new role, the government decided to end our contract for the work and we were facing layoffs and I was up first because I had only been there for a few months at that point. So I was feverishly looking for jobs and came across a job for suicide prevention with the military, which is something that hadn't necessarily crossed my mind, you know, as an undergrad thinking about what I wanted to do for work, but I seemed really interested. I didn't think that I would get the job, but I applied and I ended up getting the job. And then it became my calling. I became very passionate about it once I became immersed in the world um, and really expanded my knowledge and understanding of suicide. And it wasn't until then, and probably honestly a few years into my career in suicide prevention, that I realized just how present suicide had been in my own life, just knowing people that had died by suicide or attempted suicide. So that's how I got into it. And it just became, I became very passionate about it and Mm -hmm. I'm here. 
Yeah. Right. I love your authenticity in terms of sharing that experience and that there wasn't you, like, it sounds like you're saying there wasn't this like light bulb moment or like you said, this profound experience. Um, I feel like so often, like that's the narrative that we hear and like in research, for example, too, right? Like I, I knew the, the year before I started grad school that I wanted to focus on emotion regulation and blah, 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 blah. But I've, you know, so much of it is serendipity in my opinion. So just really appreciate your authenticity with that. Yeah. I'm always sure to share that with people because I feel like there's this push of you have to know what you want to do. And honestly, like I would actually describe my whole career that way. I thought that, you know, I wanted to work in a psychiatric hospital. I never wanted to do private practice. I now own my own private practice and I work in suicide prevention, two things that were not on my Mm -hmm. radar. So go do the thing you don't think that you have interest in because it may be actually what your passion is. So, Wow. And that's it for today's episode. (laughs) That's great advice. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't find my career calling until I was well into my thirties. So I love that. I love that advice. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. So this is something that we ask each guest. Um, And I'm really interested to hear your response to this. What is one thing that you wish everyone knew about suicide? I wish everyone knew. I think there's two things. One is that it's way more common than we think, especially in terms of people who have thoughts about suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually kind of think of it as a condition of the human experience in that when we are going through certain things, it's not uncommon and it's not surprising that some people have these thoughts. And I feel like you're more likely to experience them throughout your lifespan at least once than you are to not experience thoughts of suicide, even if they're fleeting or passive And on the end of the spectrum, that's like, "Mm, if I didn't wake up tomorrow, I wouldn't have an issue with that. The second being that it's not just a mental health issue. In fact, Mm -hmm. I would argue it is much more a structural and social issue than it is a mental health issue because even the mental health risk-related aspects are structural in social, in nature. I mean, obviously some are biological and inherent to some of the symptoms of the disorder, but access to care, stigma, all of those things are social and structural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that forward. And I, that's really where I want to focus our discussion today is on those structural social drivers of suicide. And when I was at your presentation at AAS this year, something that I wrote down in my notebook, and I don't know that you said this per se, but it was a thought that, you know, popped into my mind as as you were presenting is suicide is an outcome of an unjust society. And like I said, I don't know that that was something that you said per se, but your talk brought that statement to mind. And I'm just wondering, 
how that aligns with what you've come to understand or what you've come to know about suicide and particularly suicide in the Black community. Wow. So that's so big of a topic to broach, but I'm going to try. So yes, I would agree wholeheartedly that suicide is the result of an unjust society. And what that quote just brought up for me, um, so I'm, I'm currently teaching an undergrad class on suicide at my alma mater. And when I was reviewing Durkheim's theory of regulation and integration with society and how too much or too little of either of those things can lead to certain suicides. Can I ask, say the name of that theory again, or the the person's name, would you? Amelia Durkheim. Durkheim. Okay, cool. Okay. So he was a sociologist, kind of like OG suicide theory. He did not look at suicide on the individual level, but on the macro level. So he posited that too little or too much integration within society could lead to suicides. Wow. And too little or too much regulation. So mores, norms, those kinds of things could also lead to suicide. So I was looking, it's typically presented in this like cross of regulation and integration and how those intersect. And I was looking at the cross and the way it lands, there's one quadrant where There's high regulation and very little integration in society. So high regulation, there's Mm. so many expectations about what you can and can't do. High regulation societies, people who are under high regulation are often people who are oppressed. Mm -hmm. And that intersection with integration into society, not being integrated into society, but having all of these forces on you dictating what you can and can't do in life and I was looking at this cross and I was like oh my gosh that's where marginalization happens that's where people are sitting on the fringes of society and I was like this light bulb moment of really the structural issues and societal issues that come into play with oppression and suicide risk so I obviously believe that the macro has impacts on the individual from the messages that are sent to individuals about their inherent worth and their being, but also just structurally about what you have access and don't have access to. Mm -hmm. So one big example for me, especially in the last couple of years, as the social justice movements for Black Lives Matter and racial justice have really taken prominence and been centered in national discourse is the messages that are sent from reactions to those protests and social movements. Mm -hmm. So for the vast majority of them, if you go under any kind of post about those movements or protests, you will find a slew of comments that are overtly racist or covertly racist Even in terms of the reporting about how reporting is different between um, certain racial groups Mm -hmm. based on their behavior. So the vast majority of comments that I've encountered have been condemning these protests. They associate 
the racial justice protests with looting, with violence. And that's also coinciding with the lack of accountability that typically comes from violence sanctioned by the state in any form. Mm -hmm. And to me, that, that and many other people, the underlying message there is that Black lives are expendable mm -hmm. and shut up about it. So if we're looking at an integration standpoint, a belonging standpoint, which so many of our theories focus on the importance of social connectedness, you already are at a disadvantage because societally, there's this message that you don't belong within the society. You're here, but you're not part of us. And we don't care whether or not you live or die. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one really salient example that's been in my mind since I've been working on my capstone, but just also my research and understanding of suicide and, and being in charge of programs and funding and looking at the research that we have about what leads to suicide, what works for addressing it. And over the years, I've just become increasingly frustrated with our field because we're so focused on intervention. Mm -hmm. And what we call suicide prevention a lot of times is actually intervention. It's not true prevention. Absolutely. And so we have to start looking upstream about what causes or what contributes to suicide risk. Um, so we look at things like social connectedness or lack thereof, access to care, financial issues, legal issues, relationship issues, mm -hmm. this whole group of identified risk factors, and we just kind of stop there. Wow. I don't think we do a good enough job of addressing those things upstream to keep people from even having thoughts of suicide or experiencing crisis. But we also don't look at, okay, well, what's contributing to these risk factors? What's maintaining them? Yep. Um, and to do that, we would have to look at the structures within our country that are creating and upholding these risk factors for suicide. Mm -hmm. So that's a very long-winded answer to your initial that. question. Yeah. I you just highlighted so much and I feel like there are a lot of things that I feel like I've been grappling with a little bit in terms of my journey with like understanding suicide and it like fundamentally boiling down to this existential question but like backing up, zooming out and like looking at more distal risk factors or like what are the things that place people at risk for these risk factors that we throw around all the time? Yeah. And for me, it's also understanding how the distal becomes proximal. Mm. So I think knowing which factors are distal and proximal are helpful, especially in a clinical context. In a societal context, a chronic distal factor to me has the same weight as a proximal individual factor. If you are chronically exposed to not having employment opportunities and you're not able to eat or have a roof over your head, which then impacts your education and you're living in a low-income neighborhood that has chronic exposure to community violence, mm -hmm. even if these risk factors are considered distal to immediate suicide risk, cumulatively, those effects add up. 
So sometimes I think (laughs) that I think these things to a point where I confuse myself and then I just get stuck in this circle of like everything's influencing everything at the same time. And I find myself also in this existential crisis of what do we do? And is the way that we've been thinking about and conceptualizing suicide risk and prevention not the right approach? Mm -hmm. Right. So Andrew and I co-lead the Milwaukee Suicide Review Commission, where we review a couple of suicides every month and look at the factors that were present in the person's life, both from kind of the proximal and, you know, what we would think of traditionally as distal factors. And so much of what we see through the review are things like homelessness and interactions with law enforcement and unemployment and a lot of basic needs issues versus mental health issues. I mean, certainly we have reviewed cases where folks have had pretty severe mental illness. And I would say we have reviewed at least as many, if not more, where there wasn't necessarily a mental health issue at the individual level that it was really either anger or despair at kind of the context that the person was living in and dealing with on a daily basis. And so, you know, I think part of our conversations and what we've been trying to do is start to kind of move those conversations a little bit upstream, but it is challenging. And I think in a community like Milwaukee, where we have had a number of suicides of particularly young Black men who were either in pursuit were being pursued by law enforcement at the time of their suicide or were having a pretty substantial or had had pretty substantial interactions with law enforcement to the point that there was documented trauma. You know, how do we, and this is something we grapple with, how do we talk about that in a way that's going to help us figure out what we can do and, and get upstream. So yeah, I mean, what you're saying definitely resonates with me. And I think definitely exemplifies some of what we've been seeing in our own community for sure. Yeah. And as you say that, I think one thing that comes to mind for me is the reliance on law enforcement with active rescue. I have strong feelings about law enforcement generally, but especially when it comes to active rescue and its overutilization in general, anytime someone hears suicide risk. So thinking about the trauma from that, but also the compound the trauma of living as a Black person in the United States and then having law enforcement show up unannounced to your location or even someone in a mental health crisis. This is not safe for a lot of people. And just thinking about how that is considered to be an appropriate response in our field in some situations And it just completely erases an equity lens, a cultural responsiveness lens uh, to this issue. Mm -hmm. I'm also very excited that you have that process set up because we have advocated for three years in Maryland to have a suicide fatality review board, which finally got passed this year and is going to go into effect October 1st. And I think this process is so important to uncovering those factors that we otherwise wouldn't glean from looking at numbers. Mm -hmm. Right. Early in the pandemic, myself and a few colleagues looked at the suicide deaths here in Maryland 
between Black and white Marylanders. And we saw that early in 2020, during the first period of progressive closure, so the instituting or implementing of mass mandates, non-essential businesses being closed, people staying home, we saw that for white Marylanders, the number of suicides compared to previous years for that same time period had actually decreased by half. And we saw the exact opposite in Black Marylanders. Their suicide deaths doubled during that time period. Eventually, the suicide deaths returned to previous levels that we had seen in previous years. But I thought that was a really stark disparity. And we have assumptions about what was driving it, but we don't know for sure. Um, And having that kind of process is really helpful in uncovering that information and not allowing us to ignore it and, and needing to come up with interventions to address it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We actually, here in Wisconsin, we just had a paper published that looked at kind of that intersectionality of race and gender identity and suicide-related outcomes during the pandemic. And we didn't look at deaths, we looked at emergency department visits for suspected suicide attempt and found significant disparity, particularly among young Black women, uh, young Black females in Wisconsin, ages like 14 to 17 in particular. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't scratch the surface of some of the mechanisms behind that or the reasons behind that, but it's something that we need to continue to look at Mm -hmm. um, because we saw emergency department visits for white young people decrease over the pandemic. And so it's definitely an issue that we need to be talking about and learning more about and, you know, trying to figure out how we can address this issue for sure. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really resonated with me and what you shared, Janelle, is related to kind of this tension between best practices for clinicians and what it would be like to practice in a way that's culturally responsive. Just an example being treating someone for PTSD related to being injured by a police officer. That was literally what we were working on is, you know, this very explicit traumatization by uh, law enforcement. And he was in a real intense, uh, I would say, like suicidal crisis where if I had gone by the playbook, so to say, I would have called the police to do a wellness check. But it was so clear to me that doing so would be extremely harmful for this individual. And so I found myself in my documentation, like explaining like that I'm not making this decision, which many might consider best practice because it will be further traumatizing. I'm curious for any thoughts you have about that. And like, maybe like as a clinician, like these tensions between our values and and our training. I would have made the same decision in that situation. Just thinking about how trauma works, that could have ended up really, really badly for your client, especially if interacting with, as I imagine it would be, would be a significant trigger. And we know that police don't have a good job at de-escalating these kinds of situations and their inherent presence is already escalating. and you know, just thinking about the bias that's placed on Black men of being a threat. So 
what I will say, one, as clinicians, we have to step back and think about our field as a whole, the genesis of it, the narratives that have been dominant within our field, which have predominantly been Eurocentric. So our entire field of psychology, counseling, and social work in the U.S. is predicated on Eurocentric views and values. And I see this discourse come up in various ways when we're talking about what's appropriate to do in session and just ways of conceptualizing cases. So I remember going through school and being told that a client being late is a sign of resistance. Like they don't want to be um, in therapy or, or there's some kind of block that's happening for them. And in many cultures, that is just the norm. Lateness Mm -hmm. is to be expected. And I've had this conversation with many Black colleagues that we don't pathologize lateness. Mm -hmm. As someone with ADHD who gets time blindness, I can also end up being late to meetings and stuff because I get so immersed in something that I'm working on. So just thinking about and taking a step back of how were these conceptualizations developed? Where were they derived from? From whose perspective are they from? When we develop these best practices, when we develop therapies, when we do research and we're talking about providing evidence-based treatment and using evidence-based practices, who were these practices developed in mind for? Mm -hmm. And who were they normed on in general? Mm -hmm. White people. (laughs) So what tends to happen in our field is what I call develop now, adapt later. So we'll develop a therapy or an evidence-based practice. We'll decide that it works. And then we'll come behind and be like, oh, we need to adapt this for such and such population. It's not culturally responsive. Yeah. Mm When really what everyone deserves is for interventions, practices, therapies to be developed with them in mind at the outset and tailored to their specific needs and normed on people who share the same identities as them and and same lived experiences as them. Mm -hmm. So we assume that these cultural adaptations to existing evidence-based practices work But again, to me, that's sending an underlying message of like, this is not prioritized in our research to create and develop um, practices with you in mind from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll take what we already have that exists and mold it a little bit. And that should be good enough for Mm -hmm. you. Right. The other thing that really bothers me too is that so many communities have ways of addressing these problems already that to me, based on the evidence we have, makes sense that they would be inherently protective from suicide, that they are engaging in suicide prevention. What maybe is lacking is resources for infrastructure and ability to access grants, not having a PhD, which A lot of times you need to be able to do research or access grant money. Mm -hmm. So all of these barriers are in the way of them accessing the resources that would allow them to scale up the interventions that they're already doing to have greater impact that interfere with them developing an evidence base for their cultural practices that already exist, that work, 
which then just propels them into this perpetuating cycle. A lot of times to be able to apply for and receive grant funding, you have to have evidence that what you want to do works. But Mm -hmm. if you are already facing these barriers of a um, not having a PhD or being affiliated with an academic institution or another eligible institution and not having an evidence base for something you've been doing that we know works, Mm -hmm. then it can create this self-fulfilling cycle of not being able to develop an evidence base, not being able to access grant funds that would also help to develop an evidence base. And it just keeps going around. Mm -hmm. And then when we think about the powers that be and who decides what our research priorities are, what research are we going to allocate funding for, we could be much more intentional about ensuring that funds are more accessible for impacted communities and historically excluded communities. But right now, there hasn't really been a significant push to do that. And in the few cases where there has been, there's still been concerns about those grants being awarded to people who are not part of the community themselves, who are just studying those communities. Mm -hmm. So... So there are all of these structural barriers to reducing risk for impacted communities, improving protective factors for impacted communities, and then being able to study them and develop an evidence base and have the literature that we need. Mm -hmm. And I found that it's very much balancing this dialectic of we need literature and evidence to know that what we're allocating resources to is going to work and is going to have the impact we need among historically excluded communities. And at the same time, people are dying. The rates are worsening. So there's this sense of urgency, too, to be able to respond to this crisis that we're seeing unfold in real time and not having sufficient tools to respond and address Mm -hmm. it. Right. One of the things I was going to ask you was around, um, you know, improving the tools of suicide prevention, but it sounds like, I mean, really suicide prevention would be making some of these structural changes around rules around grant funding, for example. That's a structural piece that is going to contribute so that these things that have been working for years and years and years um, in community can be learned from and scaled up to other communities that have been excluded from the realm of suicidology. Improving the tools of prevention, that's probably important, right? But as important is making resources accessible to communities that have been doing this work for for many, many years. And it is challenging. I was talking to a partner in another part of the state today that, you know, was expressing frustration around how difficult it is to get a grant if you don't have a PhD or if you don't have an academic partner. And so I think that's something that's really important for us to keep in mind as we're talking about this issue. For sure. Yeah. And I think two things come to mind for me hearing you say that. One is an example of how much we're missing by not having diverse and equitable viewpoints in suicidology. So just looking at the risk assessments that we do have available, they are largely based on literature that is normed on white populations. And 
Some of our definitions of attempts, preparatory behavior, etc., are very limited and don't capture the cultural nuance that comes with suicidal ideation, expression of suicidality, um, what constitutes a suicide attempt, especially when we're thinking about you know, this basic fact that access to lethal means is a significant driver of attempting suicide and dying by suicide. So there's this one example that stands out in my research for my capstone, talking about the need for a cultural model of suicide, which has been developed. And just thinking about how there was this one study done of young Black boys in Washington, D.C., And they were asked if they had ever attempted suicide. And they were like eight or nine. And two of them said yes. One said by holding a pillow over his face, which to me may meet some clinician's threshold of attempting suicide or having intent. Mm -hmm. For other clinicians, I don't know that it would rise to that level of being taken seriously. The other that I think the vast majority of clinicians would miss and our risk assessments and screening tools would miss was this one young Black boy in the same study who said that he attempted suicide by staying out late in a dangerous neighborhood that was known for gun violence. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yep. So that really stuck with me. And it stuck with me this whole time about our definitions of suicidal behavior and and how much we're missing and also the fact that many racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to engage in hidden ideation Mm -hmm. compared to our white peers so that's also another nuance and factor that impacts the validity and reliability of our risk assessments Mm -hmm. I also think that reducing the structural barriers for research and developing culturally responsive suicide prevention models goes hand in hand with addressing the structural risk that we see. Mm -hmm. Both have to be done in tandem with one another, I think, to actually make the impact that we need in our field. Janelle, can I ask... Dr. Joyce Chu at Palo Alto University in California developed the cultural assessment of risk for suicide or the CARS measure. And I I just wonder if that's a measure that you think like addresses some of these issues or like the model that Dr. Chu like based it on um, in terms of like a cultural model of suicide. I don't want to like get us too off topic, but I'm just curious, like, do you think that is an example of work that might be moving us in, in the right direction? No, Andrew, you just taught me about a new risk assessment for me to look up. So thank you. So I, I'm not familiar with it, which is a shame. But from what you've shared so far, I think so. Um, adapting or creating new assessments that address these nuances in the way that suicidality is expressed in different cultural groups is definitely a necessary step in the right direction. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Something I like about it is (laughs) that it it includes protective factors that are relevant to racial ethnic minoritized communities. And so to me, that's a big improvement over measures that just don't consider that. 
I just found this study. So I will be reading up on this as well. Like it's great to hear that there's being that there's work that's being done out there on this. So yeah, thank you, Andrew. That's a new one that I hadn't heard of either. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I thought her name sounded familiar. And I thought she was one of the lead authors on the cultural theory of suicide, and she is, which just blows my mind because how did this not come up in my research? Yeah. I just right. That's so wild to me. And even now, like I had the lectures on suicide risk assessment and screeners in my uh, course last week. And even in reviewing newer literature and also any guides or information that some of the bigger suicide prevention organizations, including Zero Suicide, had to make sure there wasn't something that I was missing, didn't include this. It was just the same old ASQ, Mm -hmm. um, CSSRS. Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the dissemination of this Right. Yeah. Uh, for identifying that as potentially an issue that's keeping this from getting into people's hands. Right. Yeah. And this isn't a particularly new study. It's from 2013. So um, it's published in a great journal, Psychological Assessment. Right. That's another something else for us to talk about. And Janelle, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but we're coming up to the top of the hour. And I know you're an hour ahead of us in the Eastern time zone. So I want to make sure that you're able to enjoy your evening. Is there anything else that you want to share with us? Anything that we haven't asked you about that you want to mention about this topic? Yeah. So I know we covered a lot. We bounced around to a lot of important topics. I think something that's important for us to consider is, so what got me interested in this topic was, was at the beginning of the pandemic. And as everyone else was, I was trying to find things to keep me occupied that I was interested in. And so I've always loved documentaries and I came across a documentary on Khalif Browder and his life and ultimately his death. So Khalif Browder, he was 16. He was accused of stealing someone's backpack. I believe he was on probation for a nonviolent offense a few years prior and so the cops picked him up and took him to Rikers Island which is a notorious, heinous adult prison. Uh, And he was taken there as a 16-year-old for being accused of stealing a book bag. So he was kept there for three years, ultimately, about two of which were spent in solitary confinement. We know how horrific solitary confinement is on the psyche Mm -hmm. and psychological uh, well-being. Um, During his two years there, he saw several inmates die by suicide. He was tortured by corrections officers, taunted by them to do the same thing. He had attempted suicide a few times in prison. All for three years later, the prosecution to drop the charges. Wow. So he spent three of his three years of his life, some of the most formative years of our lives, I would argue 
um, behind bars in an extremely traumatic situation over an accusation that was unfounded and also over a backpack, even if he did take it, I, it, it just doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't add up. Right. So he tried his best to assimilate back into the community. Um, a lot of people would ask him about school, which was a point of shame for him because he didn't finish high school because of um, the wrongful incarceration. He tried to get a job. He tried to go on dates and he just was having a really hard time reconnecting with his community. He was suffering from severe PTSD and eventually he died by suicide. And I watched that documentary and I was just floored. And I think I had also watched the Central Park Five series immediately before that. Mm. And I was just like, we are so hyper-focused on the outcomes of racism and police brutality in terms of people being shot and killed by police, which is also a horrible outcome of these systems but something that we're completely missing is suicide as a result of institutional racism Mm -hmm. and these systems and so that's what got me interested Mm -hmm. in looking at this what evidence do we have that structural and institutional racism leads to suicide and that's the genesis of my capstone and and what I consider will be my life's work and We have the evidence to suggest it. We're working on frameworks to be able to study it, to develop this evidence base that we hold in such high regard. I think the question I want to leave people listening with is, why has it taken this long for us to get to this point? Why have we as a field yet to name the obvious that racism is a risk factor for suicide? And to critically examine the way that our field is wrapped up in structural racism and how that's impeding us as a whole from moving forward uh, in suicide prevention. Yeah. So horrible. And I think you're speaking to public health contribution, potentially to suicidology in the field, um, you know, helping to think about these, um, these big questions and, um, you know, taking the focus off of the person and placing it on the systems and the structures. Janelle, do you have the bandwidth for one more question? Yeah. Okay. So I have the privilege of doing a training on uh, multiculturally responsive assessment and, and prevention of suicidality with a couple of colleagues that I met through the Milwaukee Health Department, both of whom are Black women. and. One of the, it's definitely like a work in progress, uh, but we've given it a couple of times and it's just been a really wonderful experience to have space to talk about these issues with clinicians. The question I've been dying to ask you is like a, where we kind of end with that training after discussion of like the historical context and, you know, introduction to like a lot of these concepts of like different layers to to racism is that clinicians have a responsibility to engage in anti-racism and I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. So thank you for asking that because it actually brings up a point I wanted to make that Sarah had brought up earlier 
about how you have to be attached, or it may have been you, how you have to be attached to an academic institution often to receive grant funding. And there is a disconnect between academia and impacted communities, and for very good reason. I mean, read medical apartheid. I'm not going to go into it, but there's a reason that communities don't trust us. So it's not as simple as just telling impacted communities to find an academic space to become affiliated with. So yes, we do have a responsibility to engage in anti-racism and be anti-racist because our field has such a pervasive history of racism, drapetomania being one, and just the inherent pathologizing of Blackness and Black rebellion and Black responses to trauma. Um, is one reason. Another reason is that our field is still not unwed from that. And if we're not practicing from a place of anti-racism, we have the potential to do damage and and cause harm, even if unintended. (laughs) I see this debate on Twitter often, and I'm very vocal because Another thing that we keep coming back to in our training is, you know, the blank slate approach, you know, to be a good therapist, Mm. you should be able to go into the therapy room and walk out. Your client shouldn't know anything about who you are, where you stand politically. And that I'm sorry, like, no, (laughs) especially in working with trauma. I'm sure, you know, yeah, clients are going to project onto us based on their experiences, what they believe about the the field and therapists, us leaving that up to them to come up with who they think we are is unnecessary emotional and mental labor and also potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Therapy is political. Mm-hmm. If we all look at our ethical codes, we all have a responsibility for advocating for a better world that ourselves and our clients are living in. Mm-hmm. The problem is a lot of people think that that stops or ends outside the confines of our therapy room, which just is not true. And I think is where a lot of therapists get stuck in looking at how the structural and societal impacts our clients individually. I can work with a client weekly to not be depressed about experiencing microaggressions every single day at work or being impacted by mass incarceration. But at the end of the day, if those structures and systems aren't changing, then Mm -hmm. the impact I'm making is minimal. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever see my job as helping clients better deal with oppressive systems. So absolutely, yes. Therapy is political. It can't be unwed from the political because the political influences or impacts our clients. I also don't understand how therapists can sit through and hear about how systems have harmed our clients and like not be pissed off about that. Yeah. So we really need to do away with this blank slate approach. We really need to do away with not discussing politics in the therapy room. Listen, I'm not talking about like whether our tax money should go to fixing potholes or putting up more road signs. That's Mm -hmm. not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, at its core, basic human rights. If a client needs to know for me where I stand on abortion, 
or Black Lives Matter, mass incarceration, immigration, trans rights, queer rights. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell them because that's what they need to be safe with me. So, yes, we need to be practicing from an anti-racist and anti-oppression lens. And not being racist or not being oppressive is it's not enough. That's middle ground and silence and being neutral always inherently side with the oppressor. Absolutely. And part of what really resonates with me about that is that in describing moving away from that blank slate approach, you're acknowledging the therapist as a human being that brings their own identities into the room, visible and invisible. And so I just love that as, um, kind of a place to wrap up for us today, you know, um, because I really feel like it pulls the larger kind of structural issues into the individual level interventions in a way that's really beautiful. So thank you for sharing that. Of course, there is never a place where I will go where I will not be a Black woman. Mm -hmm. We all have our identities with us. They don't magically stop at the door in the therapy room. And we're naive to think that we can practice from a place where they do. So I appreciate you asking the question. As we wrap up, um, I want to just offer, you know, oftentimes at the end of an episode, we'll encourage folks to kind of take a moment to check in, right? And see what's coming up for them. And something I just want to kind of name um, is I think that part of why there's reluctance to dive into thinking about systemic or structural uh, contributors to suicide or uh, oppression is that it's really difficult and, and can be overwhelming. And so I guess I just want to put out there that in case I'm not the only one feeling like, well, we just opened up all these cans of worms and now we're like ending the episode, like that you know, these phenomena can be true and we need to continue these conversations, but at the same time, we can breathe and just know that we're not alone in in raising these questions. So I just wanted to throw that out there and encourage ourselves uh, here and then also our listeners just to notice what's coming up for them. And I think it's brave to show up and have conversations without easy answers. So thanks everyone. Yeah, thank you. Um, I so appreciate the work that you do. And, um, you know, you taking the time to talk with us today. I just, like I said, I feel like I could chat with you for hours and maybe sometime we'll, we'll be in the same space again and we'll be able to catch up and have some coffee and chat some more. So thank you so much for being here today, Janelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you making this happen. Just a quick reminder that if you are concerned about yourself or a loved one, a great resource is Alternatives to Suicide. You can find Alternatives to Suicide at Alt2Su at Prevent Suicide Wisconsin and Mental Health America Wisconsin's web pages. Please reach out. There's a great group for you to connect to through that program. Thanks so much again to Janelle Kovich, our guest, and we're really excited about our next episode. We're going to be talking with Stephen Oliphant, who did some work looking at the repeal of the 48-hour waiting period on handgun purchases in Wisconsin and the impact of the repeal of that law. So thank you so much, and we will talk next month.